0: We had lots of fun last week with 289, didn't we? All about masters, uh, the way the masters play in the world of history, isn't it? I've just been thinking about it and talking about it ever since. It was just so interesting. Um, did I talk about Fernando III in this class last week or not? About, about you know, he... Uh, uh, he Fernando III incarnated as the king of Spain... And and Spain was largely held by non-Christians at that point, and for 38 years he he went to war to retrieve Spain for the Catholic Church, which, you know, in the context of our life now you kind of tilt your head like that, but it was apparently very important that the um, influence of Christianity be maintained in that part of the world. Fernando was who? Fernando was was master in a previous incarnation. Fernando the Saint they call him it was in the 1200s but it's just like we can't we can't be too narrow in our concept of what the spiritual path is and we can't be too sentimental in how we look at things or 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 impose upon other circumstances the values and the realities of our present day it's just it's just so it's so important to just remain mentally flexible. You know, Swamiji was so often so shocking in many things that he said because he was so completely outside of modern... He, he, he lived outside of fads, actually. That was the word I would use. You know, a lot of things that are just become fads. Um, political correctness has a greater underpinning than just being a fad, but it's also a fad. sort of want things to be a certain way. And uh, that was a word that Swami often said. He always stays outside of fads, he said. And actually I realize that thinking about it now, you know, he didn't mean like little fads like women wearing yoga pants, you know, to work or something like that, or fashion. He meant fads as ways of thinking that are not necessarily based on timeless principles but are just based on You know, we're we're moving out of institutional religion. It's just Kali Yuga moving into Dwapar. Institutional religion just doesn't have the power that it used to have. Um, I I was just thinking of it like the minister of churches. Ministers of churches used to be the most prominent citizens of of many towns. It was just a very highly respected profession. And if you were the minister of one or this church or that church, it was a, a position of great prestige and influence and now it it's hardly so. I mean, as youth groups schedule their soccer games on Sunday morning without even thinking about it. I mean the idea that a family would not want their children to go there because they need to go to church i was I was so impressed by the fact that the y m c a is open in the morning on Easter Sunday. It's like just in the morning, just the time. When a person would otherwise want to go to church, but it's like that's people want to come exercise because they have the time off. But in a sense, it's a fad, in a very big sense of that word, because it's a transition from one thing to another. But but in the, in the 1200s, when Master incarnated, and even earlier that, when he was William, and Swamiji was Henry, when Master was William the Conqueror. Then he was, he was the Catholic Church was the power. And he, he supported that power. Even though now he comes and he teaches original Christianity and he doesn't have much good to say about churchianity. But at the time that he was living then it had the positive force and whatever reason he was no less enlightened. I mean, I can't really parse all this apart, but it it does tell me that we should always stand back a little bit and not be just too quick to get on bandwagons that are really just fads, that are not really... There may even be a deeper truth under it, but the way it's expressed um, may just be a a kind of groupthink rather than an actual real revelation. Swami always held his mind completely free of superficial influences. You know, and, and he would he would listen to them. I mean, for example, world brotherhood was a phrase that Master used. He spoke of World Brotherhood colonies and we called Ananda for a long time a world world brotherhood colony. And then we had the World Brotherhood choir, which was a name that Swami really liked. But only very slowly um, did we begin to appreciate that brotherhood was a gender-specific word that was not so popular. And we, we, But he wasn't going to just jump on the bandwagon right away. But gradually we thought the World Brotherhood Retreat wasn't necessarily the best thing to call it, so he called it the Expanding Light. But it was a gradual sort of recognition. But to the end of his life he refused not to use, when he wrote, in his writing, he used he as the impersonal pronoun. It got to the point where in more than one book, or at least one, he wrote a little preface explaining the fact that he knows eight languages, (laughs) and in every language where there isn't a gender-neutral pronoun, he is considered to be the impersonal pronoun. And he protested the awkwardness of not using it and just simply said he was going to outlast the fad, and he was just going to do it. I mean that that was he was it was just like anyone who paid any attention to his writing understood that he was the least gender prejudiced person who ever lived. He was gender blind. He famously said once to Nirmala when they were walking down the street, Nirmala being a woman in our community. He looked. They were walking down the street and he looked in a window and there was a dress that looked very unattractive to him. And he turned to her and he said, "If you were a woman, would you wear that?" And she, having a quick wit and a good sense of humor, well, Swami, as it happens, I am a woman. She said, (laughs) And no, I wouldn't wear it. (laughs) But you often felt, really, he just, he would lose track. Because it's just people are people and your gender is a very temporary identity of the soul. But they are fads that go through where we can't say this and we can't say that we have to be sensitive about this. And sometimes they have a basis. But anyway, it's very, it's interesting to contemplate how. And also that Master, as an avatar, as both William and Fernando, spent most of his time killing people in battle and leading other people into war. I mean, there's the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna and Arjuna are there, and Arjuna is so upset about having to kill people, and Krishna says very simply, well, you see their bodies fall, I see their souls rise. You know, you think something has died, I know nothing has died. I mean, just so casual. Swamiji, it might be in this book, Swamiji told us at some point that Master said once or twice, I don't know, he said, God eats people. And then he said, Master went like that. (laughs) Just like he was God gobbling people up. You know, it's just... um, And we're so attached and worried about it all. You have that other story of Adi Shankaracharya, and the very, very nervous woman disciple who always was anxious, and she said to her guru, "But, it, but if I do that, something might happen. I could die." And Shankaracharya said to her, "Die then," and she did. She just fell over, just like that, and she just died. I mean, my when I, I've heard that story so many times, and one time when I thought about it, I thought, "Well, he was probably with her on the other side." And he said, well, how did that work for you? <laughs> you know, it's like, so now you've died. Like, so big deal. So maybe next time you're not going to be so worried about it. Like, what would it matter to a master if we die? If we're moving toward the light, how many bodies have we had? I mean, even that, it's just sentimental. We're so attached to it. What would it really matter if it's, if it's taking us toward god realization?" It's very, very important to be wide awake and not just follow subconscious patterns because we've always followed them. Anyway, Swami, it was great fun that way. So that was the one we did last week. We spent the whole week, the whole time on it. So let's go ahead. Any comments or questions, though, before we do? Yes. It's a little bit about last week. <clears throat> so what I was... The main thing I was getting from it was that Unless you get caught in a group karma, it's all individual karma and you go to whatever group is, is going to help you learn your lessons. Is I, that correct? Meaning where you're born is because you need to be born there. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that because you happen to be born there these awful things happen to you or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly true. And it's, it's odd how we're born and where we're born. In my own personal birth family, many of my worst qualities were exacerbated by my birth family. I mean, just not terrible because I had a good birth, but a lot of what I chose to associate myself with worked against, did not help me develop qualities that subsequently after I came to Ananda I had to develop. Humility, discipline, just a whole bunch of things. And I just, at first I really wondered, you know, like, basically I thought, what a stupid thing to have done. Wouldn't it have been wiser to go to some place that would have moved me in the direction that I really wanted to go, instead of pushing me further and further in what I considered to be directions I didn't want to go when I when I woke up enough to know it? All of this, I'm talking about nuances, because my family was very good. It was just nuances, inclinations. But the, their inclinations did not help me, excuse me, did not push me in the direction that I subsequently had to push myself. And so I wondered why. But I realized that before we will notice that some quality in us needs to be changed, it has to get bad enough for it to really in- assert itself in our lives. And that's the point at which we put out the willpower to shift it. Otherwise we all it's, the, it's an unfortunate quality of human nature to just drift along with what's there. But if drifting along with what's there is too unproductive or too painful, then we'll notice where our pain is coming from. Because our problem is we don't know where our pain is coming from. There's just this weird inclination to want to do more of what we're already doing. I mean, a friend of mine said, you know, what I need is to be more disciplined. And I said immediately, oh my God, that's the last thing you need. You just need to lighten up just relax, give yourself a break. And I remember, this was very early with Swami, really, this is my only excuse, very early. I said to him that I felt that I just wasn't progressing as I ought to and that I needed to increase my power of analysis. That's what I actually said, those are my words. And my memory of Swami, and sometimes I feel like I I felt the energy, and then I imagined a physical thing because he was sitting in a, a chair, and my, I, I imagined that he stood up like that <laughs> but I suspect he didn't because I never saw him do anything like that, but I felt like he stood up and sort of grabbed me, but I suspect he sat perfectly still, but he said quite emphatically, No, <laughs> but he felt I felt like he was trying to erase the concept from my mind. It wasn't just, no, that's not a good idea. It was like, you know, cosmically no. And then after that force field sort of knocked me back, he said, very sweetly, what you need is devotion, like that. But it's like, why would I have thought that? Except that that was just what I was. I was, you know, mentally very intense and I, just, I, just, I was kind of shriveled, and I just thought if I just got even more shriveled and more pointed, you know, then I could better bore through it. Pardon me? Better at it. Yeah, you know, better at it. But I, wasn't, I thought the only reason it wasn't working was because I wasn't good enough at it. When, in fact, it was because it was a really stupid idea. But until it gets really bad, you don't notice. And so oftentimes we, we just pick situations that just exacerbate our faults. Like, I mean, you and I were both born into Jewish culture, and Jewish culture, in certain families you have a tendency to think that you're a lot smarter than most people and pretty much better. I remember a Jewish friend of mine who lived in a very um, insular Orthodox Jewish community, not extreme but relatively insular, so she she was passionate about it so she participated. Then she reached college age, and she went to. She was a very smart girl, and she went to a very, very good college. But there weren't. It wasn't. There weren't a lot of Jews in the college she went to, and she remembers sitting for this orientation with all the other freshmen, and was conscious of the fact that she may have been the only Jewish girl in the room. And she thought to herself, "All none of these people are Jewish, and they were all smart enough to get into this college." <laughs> And then it was the first time it crossed her mind that maybe the whole premise was false, but you know it had to push pretty far before it crossed her mind. Something had to crack it, and sometimes you just push arrogance to a certain point and finally you notice that it's not working for you and But if it wasn't pushed, it would still work for you. I mean, why are people persevering in their terrible habits? because they haven't noticed that it's the cause of their suffering yet. They still think... One of my friends, when I was going through, I don't remember what I was going through, but it was something that was just tormenting me, and she, was, uh, she had a, a lot of healing energy, and so she just started, at my request, we were just sort of trying to work through a little bit of what was making me mentally upset. And I described this whole attitude I had towards something, and I just remember so sweetly, she just leaned over and said, and how is that working for you? And it was such a good question. Actually, now that you bring it up, not very well. So then, well, gee, maybe I should think about a radical change instead of just doing more of it. So anyway, so yes, you will be born where you get to be more and more sadistic, or more and more oppressed, or very, very wealthy, or dishonest in your business dealings, because and sometimes you, re- you repudiate them immediately, but sometimes you get to go into them farther. And then when you finally wake up, you think, why was I in that situation? I mean, I, th- I thought, I had to think about that when I was first traveling and teaching in India. I know I've mentioned this before. And, you know, the family has so much power over the individual in that culture, which is not something I take very happily. I've been always, always, been very rebellious against society or family imposing their values on the individual when it's it's not in the best interest of the individual. I mean, I took it even worse when it's not even that. I would just say, desire of the individual, what to speak of the best interest. I read uh, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina when I was maybe 12 or 13, which is a great story, but the whole story is how, you know, the different standards for men and women and how this woman leaves her husband and goes with her lover, but then is shunned by society. I was just grinding my teeth through the whole book. I was so upset, you know, just because why didn't she just kick over the traces and make her own life, you know? I didn't have any sense about it. But the idea that society or family could oppress you like that just absolutely pushed me over the edge. I mean, the whole, that's the whole premise of the book. So it wasn't a pleasant reading experience. But in retrospect, I thought my reaction was so extreme. But it's a karma I've lived through. And now I was born into a family where I had tremendous freedom to make my own life. I didn't have to fight that battle anymore. So when I went to India and met a lot, especially women, but also men, who were just really caught in this family versus individual energy, you know, at first I just had no patience with it. But then I had to realize, no, of course, these people are here because it's something they have to figure out. You know, which side of it they they need to go on depends on the individual. Some people are so selfish, they need the family to hold them. Some of them are too passive and they need to break free. But they need the karma. It's not a mistake if they have the karma. And it didn't serve me just to become irate like I did at Tolstoy's novel. (laughs) I had to, you know, try to find... What the Dharma is of all this, but there it is again, nobody would be born into that situation unless they needed it, whichever way it would go whatever i there was a there's a story in my book about Swami Kriyananda. It's actually about an Indian man whom Swami wanted to join the invited to join the ashram and thought it would be good for him to join our ashram in India. He said, "Oh, but my mother would be so disappointed if I did that." Swami said. What he actually said was, sooner or later, we all have to disappoint our mothers. But then he modified it to, we have to be prepared to disappoint our mothers. But he first said, sooner or later, we have to do it. Which is, you know, it's a pretty strong statement. Especially considering that Swamiji was actually extremely respectful to his parents. And, you know, very attentive. Even after his father died, and and he he had a substantial inheritance and he said my father never gave any money to Ananda although I recently heard him say on a recording uh, although by the end of his life his father's life he felt that his father was impressed by what he'd accomplished but his father never gave any money ever even to the point when Swami himself needed money for medical reasons his father just couldn't bring himself to do it because he felt that Don, his son, had earned so much and given it all away, his father just felt it was enabling him to now rescue him, because the only reason he needed his father's help was because he would behaved so irresponsibly from his father's point of view. So Swami felt that if he took his father's money and just gave it to Ananda, he said, my father's soul will not rest in peace. And he said, and if I don't give it to Ananda, my soul will not rest in peace. <laughs> so he built Crystal Hermitage as a spiritual center for the community, but it was also his home. Because he had his little apartment there and he enjoyed the gardens and everything. And he thought that was a fair compromise. But this is even after his father is gone. He, he felt the responsibility so strongly. However, in anything that was really a choice between biological, earthly family, and God, there was simply no contest. Very early on in his spiritual path. Let me, think, let me just think of this is true. Actually, I, I'm sort of a little blank on this. I know there was the moment between Master and his father when Master's father started to criticize Sri Yukteswar. And Master's father was a guru by Sri Yukteswar. And Master said, if, if he earthly life is something but spiritual life is everything if you say one more word against my guru I disown you as my father forever just that was that and of course his father never did at one point my parents in the, just started slightly to be a little negative about what I was doing I just said really simply first of all it's way too late I've been doing this for such a long time and my own, life is completely my own your opinion is really not going to influence me, it's just going to divide us. I said, Don't do it. And just very nicely they realized the wisdom of that and they didn't. I don't know what they really thought, but don't do it. Okay. Are we having a problem? Okay. So shall I go finally go on to number two ninety? Okay. Number 290, the master was sitting on the stage at the Hollywood Church one Sunday. The stage curtains were closed as he gave lunch to a few guests. Isn't that nice? Master turned his temple into a dining room just like we do sometimes. (laughs) And it was even the dais. He was on, they call it the stage, but he was sitting in front of the altar serving lunch because it's the only building you have. He gave lunch to a few guests. I, as a minister, I, Kriyananda, as a minister of the church, was present. A lady asked, Master, wasn't Dr. Lewis your first disciple in this country? That's what they say. He sounded almost offhanded. Then, noticing her surprise, he added, I never call people my disciples. God is the guru. They are his disciples. Swamiji also, uh, in another place, tells the same story about how Master... You know, essentially stop that conversation he said he also said that Master felt that discipleship was too sacred a subject for casual lunch table conversation, which is also he, he gives it a different uh, aspect of it here, but that's what he also said. The other thing which is it's really important to to appreciate that how Master himself regarded his position as guru. Of course, he, he, he called himself the guru, he put his own picture on the altar, so it wasn't as if he didn't in any way accept the role that he had, but Swamiji so said the degree to which he deferred to both what he called my master, which was Sri Yukteswar, and also to Babaji, was an important understanding of what, essentially, what a master looks like. Because... We, we, we get this idea in our head that uh, a master is always going around reminding you that he is the guru and you are the disciple, you know, that he's the one in charge. Whereas the characteristic feature of someone as elevated in consciousness as Yogananda was is a complete lack of pretense and a complete lack of self-importance and how can there be humility when there is no consciousness of self? And that's completely different from saying, yes, actually, Dr. Lewis was my first disciple and there were just really actually thousands of them afterwards, you know, which is how people sort of pretend when they're, when they're playing it, but not at all the way he behaved. One of my favorite stories of how differently a true master behaves than the way we think is about Ramakrishna, who was an avatar in the 1800s. And his, that lived at the Kali Temple in Dakineshwar outside of Calcutta, and uh, there was this woman, um, Bhairavi was her name, and she was a, a sattu and a scholar, and she came and she she had a, a you know, these different people passed through Ramakrishna's life, so she was close to him for a time, and and then she convened a. A convocation of scholars, and she and it, it was sort of like a, a formal hearing, because she was advocating the position that um, Ramakrishna was an avatar. And she presented all the scriptural references and all the reasons why it was obvious that he was an avatar. And then this judge of scholars tried to decide whether, in fact, you know, he was an avatar. It was the kinds of things that happen in a country where people care about this sort of thing. It was of great interest to everyone. And Ramakrishna sat and listened to the whole discussion. And after it was over, they all decided that in fact he was an avatar. And, and in the gospel, it, he just talks about it. Did you hear? They had a hearing and they decided I was an avatar. <laughs> but he presented it just like, isn't it charming? I mean, it's just, it meant nothing to him. Absolutely nothing to him because he was so far outside of any personal identity that he could just talk about it like a child. You know, so, so a simple thing like, was Dr. Lewis your first disciple? When it, it and it's not, you have to understand, this is, well, I, I'm going to say this from what I learned from Swami. Many times I thought Swami was disciplining himself to have the right attitude. And only later did I come to understand that there was no discipline involved and there was no attitude involved. It was simply the way he perceived reality. And, and that's quite different. It's a completely different state of consciousness. The, the dramatic example of that which I've shared with you is, is the fact that he, he never seemed conscious of the fact that I was so much younger and inexperienced than him. And he said later, well, especially age, he said, I never noticed. I never think of people in in terms of their age because the soul is ageless. I mean, really think about it. I I spend these six weeks of this time of year in the school working, helping with their school play, which puts me in association with with a big group of children, which is not my normal life. And it always reminds me, because in a very short period of time, you you forget completely that they're children. They're just, they're so distinctly who they are and they they operate so consistently according to who they are, which includes also being smaller and having less experience in this world and being delightfully unsophisticated in many things that they do. This little girl that I overheard this today, she's a second or third grader. She's very, she has a lot of willpower. And it was at the aftercare program and she had a little picture. Apparently she it was just a little drawing, and I think she wanted to make a copy for all of her classmates. So she said to the woman in charge, I need twelve copies of this. And one of the other children said, We never make copies in aftercare, meaning the school office is closed. We never make copies in after school care. She said, Well, I'll be the first. <laughs> <Which I thought. laughs> What a great spirit! Yeah, really. It was just so matter of fact. <laughs> but, but, Yeah. Pardon me. Knew just what to say. She knew just what to say. But it was such a complete response. What does that have to do with me? The fact that it's not usually done. I want it done now. I don't think she succeeded. But I, I almost cheered her spirit. I thought, <laughs> that go girl. You go. You tell him. <laughs> Athesa, <laughs> where were we? Oh, I was talking about consciousness. You know, they're just children. I was saying, being in the school, you, everybody's just themselves. But but with the masters, they really see the world differently, and so you can't you can't force them to see it. You can't force them to see themselves as egos, because they just don't. There's just no way you can do it. Remember. Um, Swami Kriyananda used to love to tell that story where he was at some gathering of, uh, it was in the 70s, maybe even into the 80s, they used to have these, they were called Meeting of the Ways, and they were big uh, festivals sort of where where all of the current spiritual teachers, there were many from India, most of whom have died by this point, so there was a meeting of all these different ways, and Swami was at some gathering and everybody was chit-chatting and so some woman who didn't recognize him sort of asked his name and he said, I'm Swami Kriyananda. And she sort of said, you are, but you're, but you're famous. And Swami said, well, perhaps, but why do you say but? He said, well, all the other famous people I've met seem important. <laughs> and he just loved that story. He told it over because what, he, what, they, what she meant was self-important. And so it was hard for her to believe that this famous man just wasn't. But there was no discipline involved because he didn't feel important. He often just spoke of himself as just an instrument of master. And where is the, where is it, where is the part of it for me? So when master doesn't even want to call someone his disciple... But God is the guru. He wasn't wasn't repudiating his relationship to Dr. Lewis, his responsibility for Dr. Lewis, even the blessing and the benefit of of what he'd been able to do. Because Dr. Lewis himself says that Master at a certain point rubbed his hands together after Dr. Lewis agreed to always listen to him or to love him or whatever the specific question was. Master said, well, now I can take charge of your life. So he was there... But how he saw that was completely different. And how that relates to our discipleship is sort of an interesting question, but it definitely tells us that it's... Let me think. Because the one that... The individual that we're devoted to certainly plays a... Here's a way to say about it. I have to go to Swami because that's the experience I have. Swami Kriyananda played the role for many of us as guru. It was very hard to discern that he wasn't. And toward the end of his life, he accepted that. You know, not in a huge way, but in a quiet way. He just accepted that. But he never wanted it touted, ever. And when people would ask me, I would just say, Well, if you have that much regard for him and feel that he's that important in your life you should do what he asks instead of arguing with him. Whatever his reasons might be, he has his reasons. And we may not understand what they are, but it's very important for us to cooperate with what he asks. And if this is how he defines himself, then we need to support it. We, we can't argue with it all the time. And so it, part of it is they're trying to show us a consciousness. Here, this is what I, where I'm trying to come to They're trying to show us what it really means to be a highly advanced soul. And we're always trying to paste on them what we think it ought to mean. You know, Swami would say, well, Master did it through me. I'm just an instrument. I just put my mind at the spiritual eye and pray to Master. And then people will say things like, yes, but Master had to have an instrument and you were the instrument. You know, just like insisting that he takes some egoic responsibility for. Why would we do that? Why wouldn't we listen? And Master hasn't repudiated his responsibility or his relationship. He's just explaining to us how it's actually carried out, is what he's really saying. And listening to that tells us how we should also live. How is our life actually carried out? Are we trying to always be personally responsible Or are we beginning to understand, oh yes, even in so serious a matter as who is the guru, it's still God, he's the one who's still acting through it, through us, through him, and that we're, you know, that he himself is just the clear window. But you can be incredibly grateful for the window and love it completely, but you have to hear where his reality is also coming from. Does that make sense? Is there any comments or questions on that? Because, as, as, especially as SRF becomes more institutionalized, but Ananda to an extent too, you know, you don't want reverence for the guru to become just a form. It has to be a real relationship. And we have to listen in order to have that. What, does, verse, Sarah? Uh, w- I'll what about the fact that Master said something like, where God is, I'm God? I'm sort of getting confused then about that. Yeah, it, it, that. Well, but that whole discussion in the path is quite. where Mas, master said uh, there was one of the uh, one of the disciples asked him about one a saint who had appeared to him, and master said, "Who are you talking about?" And the disciple said, "Well, the one who appeared to you on the bluff at Encinitas." And then master said, "Well, so many come. I really don't know which one you mean." And then when the disciple was sort of incredulous, Master said, well, God is, there his saints gather. Right. And uh, yeah, that's quite a statement too. But it doesn't all reconcile. But again, for him to say where God is, we hear it as, well, where God is. But what he was really saying is, there's, how can there be humility when there's not even a sense of self? it's just where he wasn't he wasn't saying anything except he was just saying that this you know this is a i'm a pure channel this is a there's no i in the story that sunday reading that we have every so often where master has this little humorous conversation with davy mukherjee and davy keeps trying to get master to say i am god and master can't say it in the way that that davy is trying to make him say it because that pronoun I used in that way refers to a state of consciousness that Master didn't have. So there's no I to be the infinite because there's only the infinite. There's no I in that state. The whole, the whole Bible is completely misunderstood because of the pronoun I and what does it mean? Because Jesus said I, but he meant I, the infinite consciousness. And then sometimes he would refer to the body that was Jesus, but most of the time when he said, I, he meant Christ's consciousness. So when Master said, where God is, well, where, where the, but he also meant something else, who knows, these are his friends, these are his companions. After a few of the Masters are responsible for Hitler, I'm just willing to sort of take anything at this point, <laughs> you know, we just don't know. And... and I think I mentioned in some context, um, Master wrote a lot of letters to Rajasee, and I've seen some of them. They were part of various things that happened when we were in litigation, but they're not, unfortunately, readily available because SRF has a proprietary ownership of them. But among the the interesting things that were in the, that those stream of letters was master chatting with Rajasi about all the different things you can do once you're in cosmic consciousness. I mean, you know, like interesting ways to meditate and how you can sort of have this experience with Divine Mother or this experience out in the cosmos. And it was like, uh, it was like other people would talk about nice restaurants that you could go to or good music that you could listen to or theater that you might like to attend. It's like once that realm is available to you apparently it's an it's a extremely varied endlessly fascinating realm. The, the Himalayan masters are busy taking care of the Second World War and last week I mentioned that Master wrote to Kamala Silva during the Korean War I'm sorry I haven't written you lately but Divine Mother ever since this war the Korean War started Divine Mother has kept me very busy. So like what was he doing? You we, we, we know, we have this thought of just sort of falling off the edge when you reach that, but not so. Lahiri Mahashaya's unpublished diaries are also just pages and pages of all the different things you can do when you're in cosmic consciousness. Because he was busy. He was sitting there meditating, but he was busy. Yeah, doing what? I don't know. Helping uh, Somewhere I heard that Master... The masters or master, you know, helping dying people on the battlefield. That was, I think, one of the things he was doing in the war. Say that again. Helping dying people on the battlefield. And D- Devi recently published in her blog that story of the the wi- the dying widow in in uh, Brindaban. Yes, where our where our work is, where Nanda the Yogananda Trust operates for the widows in Brindaban. This, this widow was dying by the side of the road, just starving to death and penniless. A man came by in a car and, and picked her up and put her in a taxi and sent her to one of the homes that the Yogananda Trust runs. And they, t- they took her in and took care of her. And when she recovered, she later saw a picture of, Yo- of Yogananda, of Master. She said, that was the man who picked me up on the road. When Happy Winningham who died many years ago of AIDS, but when she was in an auto wreck, she had, she had several near-death experiences before she died. She was a, a contemporary of mine, but she died quite young. Um, she, in the course of the accident, now part of it I don't quite remember, but a man, when she was sort of in the middle of the accident, maybe she was by the road or something, a man came to help her and played an important part in helping her get rescued from the accident. And many years later she saw Master's picture and it had been him. He just, he came and he helped her. So when he's doing that, does that make him unable of helping someone else? You know, just like, and there was, there's a story in one of those Rajasi letters, I think, let me think how this, the details escape me, but the essence of it was Rajasi in his cosmic state, was visiting the higher realms, but Master wasn't there because he was busy elsewhere. So I I think we have to think, again, you have to hear these things and realize we don't know very much and we just have to become extremely interested in when we're going to find out. It, It just makes you humble and it, for me at least, it makes the path extremely interesting. When I started on this path, Um, you know, many years ago now, 22, um, I had already finished a lot of stuff. I mean, I hadn't really had that much life experience, but a lot of things I knew were not going to work. You know, that I just... I knew were not going to work. So there was no certainty that this was going to work. I'm so fast and intense about things. I didn't know whether in a few years it would just... that it would be behind me too. But no way. In fact, the longer I stay on it, the more... It just gets so much bigger than me. I love that because I don't like being bored. And, and it's, you know, I certainly know that I don't belong at the front of the line, so I'm really glad to see, you know, that the line and the whole thing is way in front of me. When I, I lived in El Paso, Texas, where I grew up, and to get anywhere from El Paso you drive forever across this barren, sandy wilderness just of sand and desert. Uh, It's right, El Paso is right in New Mexico and it's just all sand. So I spent many, you know, family, any family car trip involved two or three hours of driving across this. I just remember the little two-lane road down the trackless desert and the little kids, you know, just hanging on the back and beating on your daddy's head while he's driving that. But, But that road, because it was so nothing, always had that mirage on it, that water mirage, and I remember urging my father to drive faster and maybe we could catch it, you know, and he would play along with trying to catch it. But it always evaporated. And that image was so vivid from my childhood that oftentimes, in relation to this spiritual path, I just feel like, I, I see something that looks like an edge to me, but it's only because I'm still too far away to realize it's just, it's just going to keep moving ahead of me. And it will. Evolution continues until we achieve endlessness. So the more I hear these really far out things the more delighted I am to know that there's just so much to learn that we don't yet know that it's just better to just keep an open mind and stay humble. Zoom on.
1: Actually just when you said about you know you think it's at the edge it just reminds me of the first time I, I took my um, children to Disney World, uh-huh. and, you know, you're in line to see anything, and you you come to what you think is the front of the line, then you realize it goes this way, and then that <laughs> way, and this way. They just master it so well that uh-huh. you think you're at the front. But, um, but my, my question for you was that when you said about how Master, you know, didn't acknowledge or for us that Roger C was his first disciple or Doctor Lewis. Or Doctor uh-huh. Lewis. Didn't think of it that way. Um, but yet, you know, and he is he is God or he is what however that label is. Right. But anytime you hear him speak
0: Master.
1: Master, mm-hmm. he always plays pays homage to his line back exactly. Of gurus. exactly. Right, yeah. and so he any prayer, any any talk, anything, you know. Right away, he acknowledges them, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of one piece. And then the other is this: I've always wondered, and the question pops in my mind and then goes away. Is why does SRF have um, Lord Krishna's picture on the altar, and we don't?
0: Because so after Master died. Um, when uh, Daya went to India, where she'd never been before, 1958, um, certain people in India, and I don't know who they were, said that with Jesus at the center of the altar, it makes it look like we're Christian missionaries. And especially in 1958, just ten years after India had finally gotten rid of the British, being a Christian missionary was nothing that that was going to be helpful. One of the reasons that SRF was able to keep Swami out of India for ten years in 1962 is that somebody in SRF told the Indian government that Swamiji was not only a CIA agent, but he was a Christian missionary in disguise. And both of those charges were sufficient for the Indian government not to let him back in the country for a decade. Because, you know, the English left a really, really bad impression And unfortunately, they used Jesus as one of the clubs against the indigenous, you know, I mean, they were arrogant enough not to recognize that they were in the presence of something greater than Christianity, not less. I should say the teachings as they understood it. So it was a valid criticism that the picture of Jesus was not going to help SRF's work in India. So they felt it was essential that something be done about that so the solution that was brought up was well we'll put we'll add krishna to the altar because then you have the two leaders of east and west and then jesus is essentially he's still there but now krishna is his equal however you think about it it neutralizes that reality so ananda had that same altar for a long time swami didn't approve because he felt because because master master did not have Krishna on the altar because master said that Babaji was Krishna and he always prayed Babaji Krishna and so he felt to put Krishna on the altar when master knew perfectly well what he was doing was just too much of a departure from something too fundamental for for um t- to to allow ourselves to be influenced by the opinion of people who were not the guru, but just people who thought it was a point. Um, so at a certain point, which I can't remember right now, but I mentioned it in my book exactly, he just... It, as Swami began gradually to realize that reconciliation with SRF was not possible, and then therefore he began to be more sincere in how we express the teachings, because prior to that... He was trying not to set too many wedges between Ananda and SRF for the hope, in the hope that we would reconcile. But when that was not possible, he was more sincere, and he changed the spelling of Paramhansa back to what Master had used, and he took Krishna off the altar, and changed our prayer because it used because SRF prays um, to Krishna, Christ, Babaji, but Master prayed, prayed to Babaji, Krishna. So he started us praying that way and took Krishna off the altar because he wanted to be more loyal to what Master did. It looks like we're less loyal, but in fact he wanted to be more loyal. But to finish it, when Ananda went to India, instead of putting a picture of Jesus up, Swamiji commissioned a painting that has Jesus and Krishna in the same painting. And that's the image that they use on the altars in India it's this it's this Jesus is in the front, and Krishna is behind him in this painting, because he saw that it was an issue, and he he tried to find another way of resolving it. So anyway, that's the whole story of that. So everything is nuanced, you know i was I was surprised when he did that, but I was very interested that he did that. He was very very emphatic about it. I mean, he Went to a lot of trouble to get the painting and so on. Okay. Let's take a break. Five minutes. During the break, a question was asked about the you must be prepared to disappoint your mother um, question, which I was talking about earlier, about Swami Vivekananda. Who, um, in the when he first met uh, Ramakrishna, who was his guru, he was a young man and his father had died, and he was the sole support of his mother and maybe his sister and the family, and you know things were very tenuous, and he was searching everywhere for work, and 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 then somehow in the course of this, Vivekananda meets his guru Ramakrishna, and uh, Ramakrishna saw him as his his spiritual son, and it was a very powerful reunion. And the exact circumstances, but I believe Ramakrishna was put Vivekananda into a high spiritual state, but something happened in which Vivekananda exclaimed, you know, essentially, but if I go, if I leave this world, if I leave the consciousness of this world, what will become of my mother? And, and uh, Suman was asking me, how did Ramakrishna respond in the light of we must be prepared to disappoint our mothers? But Ramakrishna's response was slightly different than that. What he did was he said, he essentially lamented, even you are in the, you know, Maya, even you think are thinking like a worldly person. Even you are tainted by the power of Maya, which is to think that I have to take responsibility, that God is not in charge. Who, who can say? But that was just... Ramakrishna's response to his disciple but then I remember that there's a story about Daya Mata and Master I mean these are chilling examples you don't know how to really put them into order but Daya Mata's mother I don't know whether she was widowed or came into some kind of difficulty this is after Daya who came Daya came to the ashram when she was 17 and her sister came with her also Ananda Mata at some point in that after some time or maybe she was newer. But she said to Master, you know, my mother is struggling. Maybe I should leave the ashram and go take care of my mother. And Master's response was extremely firm. Swami tells the story in the path. He says, get out, get out. We only want people here 100%. And Daya Mata was horrified by what had happened and immediately fell at Master's feet and began to weep you know, this is my life. I don't want to be, I don't want to leave here. Absolutely not. And Master said, well, that's better. He said, you've given your life to God. Your mother is God's responsibility now, not yours. But then Swami adds, Master invited her to come live at Mount Washington, and she lived there for the rest of her life. So it's very complicated. Swami said, once my father just said, he was speaking conversationally, my father and master said, you have no father. And Swami said, my earthly father. And master said, that's better. What did Jesus say when the disciple said, my father has died, let me go bury him. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. And I think he more or less dismissed that disciple as not committed enough. But at the same time, Swami was very extremely attentive to his parents. Master did leave his father, but he he said, I, "I will see you again," and he went back to see him. Master was completely devoted to his mother. You know, it it's it's you can't just make institutional rules about these things. It has to be what is really happening there. Fernando the third, who uh, who I was talking about was very devoted to his mother his mother was very very saintly and he was devoted to her and she was a great help to him through his whole life and then he had two wives his first wife died and both of them were also very saintly and he was very devoted to both of them according to this book but it's very likely true as when he was william he was f- completely faithful to his wife at a time when it was not at all common for a king to be faithful to his wife his wife was just his wife and then there all these other women as a rule but not for him so who can say yeah it's just one of those receding mirages that we just have to wait and try to figure out I remember and I've said this to you all before a woman who came to this church and doesn't come anymore because it, it, we just weren't what she needed but after she'd been coming for a while she sort of took me aside in a sense she'd come from a, a fundamentalist Christian context and she sort of said to me in essence that she'd begun to suspect that we were not really, we didn't really stand for family values, meaning the sort of the family-first kind of attitude. And it was like making her very nervous. And I said, well, we're certainly not against it. (laughs) But we actually feel that the duty to God sometimes transcends the duty to marriage and family. But that was too much. But that's the Gita, If a higher duty calls, then a lower duty ceases to be a duty. Well, I'll I'll give the caveat to that, which wasn't directly to that, but Shivani was working in the garden, and a lot of the volunteers in the garden were people who had just, this was in the early 70s. The garden was, it was pretty arduous work. It was very hot in the summers. It was, you know, over 100 for many days in a row. And we did, how did, Ananta wrote it somewhere. He said we were using, uh, we were were farming in the 19th, in the 20th century with 19th century methods. (laughs) So it was all handwork and no tools, and so a lot of the people who came to work in the garden did not work very hard and decided they would rather not, and they didn't show up. And Shivani says to Swami, you know, it's a garden. If you don't harvest the crops, the crops rot. If you don't water the plants the plants die. If you don't weed them, they don't thrive. You know, it, The work has to be done. It's not optional. And she said, I know people are more important than things, but aren't some things more important than people? <laughs> it was a natural feeling. And Swami said, uh, well, yes, he said, some things are... I, the, but then Shivani said, but aren't some things more important than people's egos? That was the word she used. And Swami says, sometimes, he said, but you better be certain you can tell the difference before you take action on that. And that I've always sort of remembered to be able to tell whether this is a convenience or whether it's really a higher duty. Because sometimes it's just a convenience or a desire and you can spin the spiritual story to make it work. And then sometimes it really is. And there's just no, you can't make rules. You have to be prepared to disappoint your mother, but you shouldn't always. Okay? When I asked Swami about that, he basically, when I asked Swami about honor thy father and thy mother, his answer was unless they have really tried to stand between you and your spiritual life, you should always support them and do what you can for them. But if it becomes a choice, or if they try to keep you from it, he said, then there's no contest it's just it's just like that, in the same way with marriage. There was a couple who were not part of Ananda, but they were close by, and they'd been married seven years, and then we heard that she was leaving him, and went now that she was leaving him, she started talking about how he always opposed her or had for a long time opposed her meditation. Whenever she would try to meditate, he would turn the television on really loud. He would just actively do things to make it hard for her to follow her spiritual path. Swami said, seven years she put up with that? He said, I would have left after 15 minutes. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's just about how much regard he had for it. This This is not even a conversation. Like, why would you put up with that? Well, attachment, desire, delusion, sir. I mean, I can think of a lot of reasons. But he just was like, don't even think about it so. All right. But you have to be sure you can tell the difference. 291. Master says, you have to individually make love to God, he, um, he insisted to us. Keep your mind at the Christ center in the forehead. As you work, remember also that you are working for God and Guru. Always chant mentally, God and Guru, God, Christ and guru. Many come here, meaning to Mount Washington, then pass their time in idle gossip and joking. Well, they won't get God. There are many rats and mice living in the canyon on this property also, but they aren't advancing spiritually. <laughs> that phrase is, you know, there's lots of phrases that become part of the Ananda culture. You know, they're, all, they're also rats and mice, you know, that's when you realize that you're not putting out a lot of effort you're just living there like the rats and the mice and it's not going to help you there are lots of rats and mice living also on this property but they aren't advancing spiritually they aren't finding God it isn't just being here that will get you to him you have to make your own effort each one of you in the end stands alone before God it's very powerful Garrison Keillor is the author of a marvelous phrase he said Imagining that, that going to church makes you a Christian is like sitting in your garage hoping to become an automobile. <laughs> but, you know, we, you have to... The way I read this is the spiritual path is not magic. You know, the the idea of magic is that you do these spells and... You sort of you perform these sort of outer things, and then something will happen. But it's not that you have to transform yourself. It's just that you have to get all the herbs and things together, and you have to boil the pot, and you have to say the incantation, and then something magically will take place. But even though you know there's um, things that you can do, it's the things themselves will not affect you. Even kriya although it's better because it's inward, it's still, it's not magic. It has to be done with the right consciousness, it has to be done the right way, with the right relationship, the right receptivity. You can't just put in your time and expect at a certain period of time you'll have a saint uh, coming out of it. That's why um, that's why discipleship and devotion are all, and service are all such a part of it. That, you know, Swam, Jyotish had the inspiration recently to write a whole book about seva, about serving God, because he, he really could see that people practicing Kriya, without a corresponding effort to expand their hearts and their sympathy and to devote their energy in a selfless manner, were not making the progress with Kriya that they hoped to make, because a of, of, of fundamental energy had to be included there, because it's not just magic. It, the... Um, Kriya is not an outer ritual, so this was written more in terms of, well, the festival of light or the mass or the fire ceremony, the Vedic fire ceremony. It's a quote from Adi Shankaracharya, but it's in the autobiography. It says, outer ritual will not save you from delusion because outer ritual is not the opposite of delusion." you understand i think that was just such an interesting thought to me and i've always remembered there's so many points in there you have to, the you know the opposite of delusion is selfless devotion to god perception of a higher reality transcendence of yourself as a as a separate entity complete surrender and trust that there's a divine power that's taking care of you that's the opposite of delusion a fire ceremony is not the opposite of delusion even sitting down and doing a certain number of kriyas is not the opposite of delusion unless those kriyas are actually an offering into the divine. A, a relationship is the word that... Whenever I, I would teach a beginning meditation class, the, the sequence of classes, the way I would teach it, there was always the second or third class was meditation is a relationship which is, it isn't you making yourself free because it's not possible for you to make yourself free. The very effort that makes you think you can make yourself free is just an affirmation of that uh, independent, so-called independent egoic power, which is the whole problem. It's, it's recognizing where we fit in this fabric of divinity and, above all, recognizing the humble necessity Um, for the grace of the guru to uh, rescue us from all of this. It still takes, it's such a, it's a very subtle line because it takes, the way I think of it sometimes, it takes all of our energy to do nothing, which is to to hold yourself so still. I remember once when I was in a very difficult situation and, and yet there was no solution. There was nothing, there was no action I could take that I felt certain was actually going to make the situation better, but I just so wanted to do something and to, to hold, hold myself back from just my ego's desire to meddle in my own destiny it took all my energy, took all my energy to do nothing and just, just, just have enough faith to wait until the situation, the phrase we often use is, played itself out. And became ripe for resolution. But that's hard. And that was when it occurred to me I have to use all my energy to do nothing at all. Just to stay still and not worry and not come up with solutions and not, as Swami often said, run around making phone calls. (laughs) You know. That was when phones were not always in your hand. You had to move in order to get to them. Right. But that's uh um that's the opposite of delusion, is complete stillness, of course. So when Master says this here, um, when he uses the phrase, you have to individually make love to God, what he's saying to you is nothing external will actually change you. The only thing that will change you is if you interiorize this experience. And of course Kriya is a powerful way to do that, but, but, even, but devotion and service are also the same. Because devotion is loving something other than yourself, and service is the active expression of that you know if you if you really love other than yourself, you just you feel motivated It's not like you try it's that you can't help yourself. how can I help I, I remember the first time I met someone who was who 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 took my problems as his own. I mean I had certain situations and I vividly remember the first time he 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 used pronouns like we and our situation when it was really mine but it was just it it touched me so deeply that he just embraced it i mean i was very young the first time i heard that but it was it was uh, it was powerful and so i've always remembered how powerful that is and then i i mean that was before i was on the path and then i read oh yeah because separateness is an illusion. So again, it's not an affirmation of right attitude. It's just a help. Um, I, I'm sure all of you face what I face too. You know, you're you're stopped on the highway and then a foot outside your door, your car window, some person is standing there, you know, some poor struggling soul is standing there. And you can tell from looking at them that they're going to go right to the nearest liquor store with the money you give. But there you are. You think, you know, what if it were me? What can I do? There was this man next to me. I don't always give money. You just sometimes you feel to. We were walking on the streets of Los Angeles once, a whole group of us, and there was like a family. And it was really funny. We just sort of walked by. It was about four of us. We just walked by. We were about half a block away And then it was like, collectively, like, we need to help those people. And we all just turned around and just gave them a great deal of money. They were extremely happy. They immediately got off and went on to wherever they were. They'd become, you know, their little sign said they'd become stranded, which apparently they had. But it was like God really told us, these are yours to help. So we turned back. But this man's standing outside my window, and he looks really down and out, and he's holding his veteran certificate to prove that he's been in the armed forces. And I thought, I can't help it, you know. I opened my wallet and gave him what little money I had. But it was really interesting to me. I think he was so embarrassed that he just, he sort of ran away and then just kind of paced around a little distance. He crossed the street and just paced around. And what I felt in my heart was he was so humiliated to have to be doing that. And he'd obviously come to such a, a low pass. But there but for the grace of God go I and there did I go, you know, how long ago. But you begin to feel all that. Imagine what it's like for the masters just to be conscious of all that. Fortunately, they're also conscious of bliss, but my, my. I was just re-listening to the audio book of um, Swami as We Have Known Him, all those wonderful stories. And I was listening to the story about the trip we took to Disneyland, when we were standing in Disneyland on that, there was about 15 of us with Swami, we were standing on the sidewalk waiting for the electric parade to start. Disneyland in those years was very innocent. At a certain point they started bringing in pop, uh, popular culture and it changed. Prior to that it was just, it was really a, a magic, imaginary world and it was very pure, uh, and Swami really liked to go there. Toward the end, he didn't like it at all. But uh, we're standing there waiting for the electric parade. I mean, there are hundreds of people around, and he—I remember Swami just very—he just—he you—you could feel when he would do this. He would just withdrew into some place, and he just sort of looked like this. And I remembered there were a lot of Japanese families around, and it just like it is there, just all over the world. Very slowly, he just looked around like this. And he turned to us and he said, imagine, not merely loving all these people, but actually being all these people. And then he said, that was Master's consciousness. So you're not affirming, you're not being generous. You just are as much someone else as you are yourself. Master, at the end of his life, remember walking with Swami? He stumbled and he said, I'm in so many bodies, I forget which one I'm supposed to keep moving. And then he said, I have to ask people if I've eaten. I mean, just again, it's not an attitude. It's that he's looking at you, he's looking around. At that time at Disneyland, the rest of that story was when Swami said that, all of us just suddenly felt so transported that we just sat down on the sidewalk and meditated, like 15 of us in this little group for about about 40 minutes half an hour, 40 minutes and then meanwhile everyone gathered around us because the parade was going to start and then when the, the little glittery things were right in front of us we sort of came out of it and I looked around and we were just surrounded by people and all of us, had, we hadn't even known it you know, it just that thought just took us all so far so you look at this poor man outside my window who God knows what his experience is. And you think, what if I, you know, could just as easily be in his consciousness? What would I what would I want to have happen? How would I help? Master used to walk in up and down in the what Skid Row section of Los Angeles, where people were drunk and on the street and in the bars, and he would just Swami said he would just walk back and forth. You know, just projecting, looking for people who are ready to be helped. Imagine. And so our little, you know, little bit of karma yoga, we're just imitating that in some way. I mean, everyone helps in their own way. Master can't write letters to Kamala because he's so busy in the Korean War. I do remember Swami talking about the masters coming onto the battlefield. I think Master said that somewhere. Angels, that the battlefields are filled with angels. I think that's what it was filled with angels you know so we, we look at it as such a horror but in many cases especially men who've died men or women who've died bravely for a cause they believe in it's filled with angels helping them okay I think that's the end of the story for tonight unless there's something more alright thank you all tomorrow is Master's Maha Samadhi, so we're going to have a lovely service here If you want to come 5 to 7 for meditation and 7.30 to whenever for the program, let me see what it is. We did 2.90 and 2.91.